Okay, I thought we'd start today with a quiz. Did I hear groaning? Oh. Okay, I told you that there's uh, a, some very, very important chapters in the Bible. Now, so far, we might have only passed through three. The first one of those would be Genesis 12. Thank you, Cliff. Genesis 12, the promises to Abraham, which were three. God promised him. Excellent. That's only question one. It's like, oh my gosh, I just, my ADD fires off. I took this test one time in college, and it was, an, it was a pop, it wasn't a pop quiz, it was a pop test. And we came and we had our books because we were ready to go through the lesson, and uh, he says, uh, I have to go, uh, so here's a test. Uh, you could use your books if you'd like, won't really help you, but go ahead and use the book if you want. You're like, are you kidding me? So he gives us this about seven-page test. It was horrible. You haven't studied. You just caught flat-footed with this thing, so I took it. It was horrible. You leave just, you know in the pit of your stomach, this did not go well. Uh, this was um, Airplane Design 1. Yeah. So this prof was the kind of guy, what am I doing? This is such a rabbit trail. Yeah, I have to finish now because I'm too far in. Okay, so he, this, this prof, wonderful guy, wonderful prof. I still have nightmares about him. Because, so you finish, uh, especially a test, and he, would, he was the guy who you got a score, and he, there were only about 20, 25 of us in the class, and so he would hand it back, person by person, and announce to the class what you'd made. Oh, yeah. Oh, for reals. <laughs> so he would hand back something, you know, uh, Smith, 27. I mean, he's saying this in front of the whole class. You're like, oh, my gosh. And the scores were low, except for this one guy who his head was bigger than all the rest of ours. <laughs> And he had like an IQ of about 400. And so his name, his name was Bob. And so he gave Bob his exam bag. And he said, Bob, 93, well done. And we went, you've got to be kidding me. This guy doesn't study. I, well, anyway, he is just a genius. Uh, so he, he, gives, he hands mine back. Egner, 53. Like, oh. But I'd been listening. And I was the second highest in the class. So I'm going, okay. So I go into his office and I said, uh, Dr. So-and-so, um, you know, uh, I got a, got a 53. Um, Want to go over the things that I missed to make sure I understand it. And he goes, Egner, 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 53, second highest grade in the class. And I'm, I'm waiting for it. I'm like, come on. Just go ahead. And he goes, it's still an F. <laughs> question two. You're all uppity because you got question one. Second, most, second important chapter that we've already covered. Okay, Genesis 12. Huh? 50. We haven't hit Genesis 50? 15. Yes, 15. Why is 15 important? What? Oh, yeah, good, 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 good. Genesis 15. Why is Genesis 15 so important? Abrahamic covenant. That's where God ratified his promise in Genesis 12 with a covenant. The covenant had three characteristics. This table is not allowed to answer. Unilateral. Oh, you're look at look. You got your cheat notes. Put your notes away. Unilateral, unconditional, 
unending. <laughs> You've already seen. Oh my gosh. Good. Then the next important chapter. Third one. I'll give you a hint. It's a prime number. <laughs> yeah. One, two. Actually, two is a prime number. Did you know that? It's the only even prime number. No. That's coming. Genesis 17. Why is that one important? Okay. Well, you have to go look that up. All right, so each of you got two-thirds. That's a 66. You got a D. At least you got better than I got on my test. Genesis 17, that's where the covenant of circumcision to ratify or to affirm who was actually in the covenant. So Genesis 17, and Sherry has reminded me there's actually a fourth one we've talked about. Good catch, Sherry. I I was saying three. There's one more. Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law. Excellent. All right. Four questions. Grade your own paper. See how you did. Tonight is uh, Genesis, <laughs> Exodus 25 through 40. 40, chapter 40, is the fifth big important chapter. Exodus 40. Why? Because God is going to come and dwell with his people. Other uh, um, Canaanite religions had priests. They had um, temples or tabernacles. Uh, They certainly had their rituals and things like that. But no one else had their God live with them, come and dwell with them. That's Exodus chapter 40. So we got the law last time. All of that was in preparation for God coming to live with his people. There's so much in these chapters. We're going to focus tonight on on the priests. And then next week we're going to focus on the tabernacle. So we're going to cover 25 through 40 in two nights. So in the event that this was a bad week for you and with the Super Bowl and we didn't meet and you already had two weeks, in case that wasn't enough to read 25 through 40, you have one more week, you can read 25 through 40 and see what we're going to talk about again next week. So there's so much going on, we're going to break it up into two pieces. Redemption, the book of Exodus. The people are being prepared. What God is doing in 25 through 40 of Exodus, he's given them the law, so he's invited them into a special, unique covenant relationship with himself. They, and he said, if you will, and they said, we will, and they ratified it with blood. And so God says, okay, prepare. You're going to build me a tabernacle, and we're going to establish a priesthood because I'm going to come live with you, which is a Pretty amazing thing. So, 25 through 40 is the the story of the things they have to get put in place so God can come and dwell with them, which is chapter 40. Because remember chapter 40, if you've read it, God comes down. So, 25 through 31. Yahweh gives his people directions for the tabernacle and its service. Its service to him. Chapters 32 and 33, the golden calf, the people reject their God king. Chapter 30, which, bad. The covenant is renewed, amazingly. Yahweh's instructions are then executed in the last few chapters, and then finally Yahweh will come to dwell with his people. So that's the big picture of 25 through 40. But all of these things are leading up to God's coming, God's presence with them, in their midst. So, God's presence. The tabernacle, as you were reading this, where did the plans for the tabernacle come from? From God. Moses didn't think them up. Moses merely got the plans from God. From Hebrews, 
What is it patterned after? Hebrews, and remember Hebrews is in the New Testament. I know that. Hebrews, sounds like it should be in the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament. Hebrews, if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, the tabernacle is patterned after the heavenly tabernacle. That's why Moses couldn't have made it up. He got the plans from God. That's why when we hit the book of the Revelation, you're going to see all the pieces of furniture in the book of the Revelation. Now, that'll be a long time from now, because the Revelation is at the end of the New Testament. But we'll get there. Actually, we're going to do it before then. But the tabernacle is God's palace. This is his palace. His throne is the Ark of the Covenant. And because he is the great, almighty, sovereign king, creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in them, he can only be approached on his terms. You don't just walk in and say, Hi, Yahweh, I'd like to meet with you. In the Old Testament, he doesn't do that. The New Testament, everything is flipped on its head because of the Lord Jesus and his finished work, we can do that. In the Old Testament, you didn't do that. So he's establishing his holiness in front of and with these people. Only his priests may approach him. Through the sacrifices he specifies, with a cleanness of mind and heart, and in the light of his spirit, sustained by his word, speaking to him in prayer. This is the only way you can approach Yahweh in the Old Testament. And so he's going to begin training them. They've, right, he's thundered up on the mountain. And they, they heard thunder and saw flame and they screamed and said, ah, if we hear his voice again, we'll die. You know, we need a mediator. We need somebody to stand in between God and us. Moses, you go up on the mountain. Remember they voted Moses in to go do that? <laughs> you didn't just go see Yahweh. He said, you will approach me in a certain way that I will specify. And he's now going to begin to lay out that framework for how to engage with him. And to instruct them how he can live with them without just destroying them. Because he can't be around all the unholiness. So he's going to lay out all this stuff so that he can come dwell with them. So his presence, it's contingent on his priests because they represent the people before God. They also represent God before the people. They're chosen by Yahweh to serve God, to serve him, but they're also chosen by Yahweh to serve his people. Do you see how they're standing in between? They're to serve in the fear of the Lord. They've been consecrated for Yahweh's service. And they are to serve him daily. So this is kind of a little bit of the outline that we're going to use tonight to walk through the priests and the priesthood. Here's the things they do. They represent the people. They represent God. They stand in between. They're chosen by God to serve him, but they're also to serve the people. So they have a, a dual purpose there. They're always to serve in the fear of the Lord. They've been consecrated for Yahweh's service, and they are to serve him daily. Not when they felt like it, but daily. So let's start with, they're chosen by God to serve him. God chose Aaron by his sovereign grace. Did Aaron do anything good? Nope. Did Aaron raise his hand and say, I volunteer for this? Nope. God picked him, and that was it. He chose Aaron and then said, from this point on, you must be born in Aaron's family to be considered a priest. Aaron's first obligation was to serve Yahweh, Exodus 28. Remember 25, they're taking up the offerings, they get the plans for the Ark of the Covenant, goes through some plans, and then in 28, verse 1, call for your brother Aaron 
and his sons, Nadab, Abihu, and Eleazar, and Ithamar, set them apart from the rest of the people of Israel so they may minister to me and be my priests. So this is what God says. Call them and set them apart for my service. So Aaron's first obligation is to serve Yahweh. How does he begin to show Israel that the priests are special and different from everyone else? He gives them special clothing. Pretty interesting, even if you think into the New Testament. Remember Paul talking about clothing, put off this, put on that. Remember it's also said that our righteousness is like a white robe. Clothing shows up throughout the scriptures to illustrate uh, conditions, statuses, um, Conditions of people. So God commands Aaron and his sons to wear special clothing. 28 verse 2. Make sacred garments for Aaron that are glorious and beautiful. He's going to set them apart. He's going to teach, whoops. He's going to teach spiritual truths to his people through these clothes. And they also have to wear these particular clothes or else they risk death. That's a pretty good way to teach the priests. I tell you what, priests, don't wear anything other than the uniform, because if you choose not to wear the uniform, I may just have to take your life. So he's training the priests. He's also training the people. By the way, he's got these priests dressed, and we're going to talk just a little bit about their uniform. So when you go to Israel, you will go to, what's the name of that museum? Temple Institute. You will go to the Temple Institute. Well, you have to go there. I mean, it's not on the tour. You have to find it and go there. But you will. And you will see this. Because in the Temple Institute, they have everything made for the next temple. Everything is ready to go save one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. They don't have it. They don't know where it is, although they, 100 people suspect it's in 100 different places. They have everything else. You talk about the gold shovels. You talk about the thises and the thats and all the stuff they're supposed to have to do, the, to do the whole thing. It's all in this place. And you'll walk by case by case. You're just looking at it going, oh my goodness. They are ready to go with this thing. They just need the Ark of the Covenant. So I went up to these two guys who are these poor guys. Oh my gosh. So I went up to them at the, when I was there. And <laughs> I said, hey, where's the Ark of the Covenant? And they, you don't know, but it's probably, and they, they just go on and on and on and on about where it probably is. And I said, you know, it's really strange. I just got back from Ethiopia, and they said they have it. <laughs> they don't have it. They do not have it. <laughs> they were ready to fight. They're going to go to Ethiopia and, and fight these guys to make sure that, they really didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. They don't know where it is. They're still looking for it. I told them, I said, you know, in Jeremiah chapter 3, it says the Ark was destroyed. <laughs> I don't know, crazy me. <laughs> have you seen Jeremiah? <laughs> anyway, they're like, Gentile, what do you know? <laughs> like, I just read it. I don't know, crazy. You will see this, this guy... You'll see this guy right here, okay? And here's all the pieces when you wonder, you read all these chapters and you go, my goodness, what does this look like? Well, here's pretty well what they think it looks like. And they have, you know, there's different renditions and versions, but you can see the great similarity between these two. And so there's some pretty interesting um, pieces of clothing, 
Uh, they were supposed to wear undergarments. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> why? You go, why would that be mentioned? Because the priests were supposed to be modest. And because they walked up steps. And I suppose God didn't want to look up under the robe. <laughs> so they were supposed to wear undergarments. Interestingly enough, just to blow your mind and maybe entice you to invite some friends to come, uh, the, the undergarments cover, in Hebrew, the place of the feet. The place of the feet. I assume... You know, so a child, a baby, you know, sort of in the fetal position, which I can't do. But, you know, the, the feet are getting up there pretty close. So it's called the place of the feet. So you want to cover up the place of the feet. <laughs> well, let's just say what Ruth uncovers <laughs> in the book of Ruth is not Boaz's feet. It's pretty close to his feet. <laughs> mm. But she uncovers the place of his feet, Wah! which is why he wakes up. Little chilly in here. Anyway, we'll get there. But just some funny, funny stuff that's, uh, they've sanitized your uh, Bible just a little bit. Yes, the, Ruth uncovered his feet. Yeah, close, only about three feet off, but we're good. But she did nothing untoward. There was nothing wrong with what she did. Ruth was a, a, a wonderful woman. She did nothing wrong. Anyway, it's just one of those funny, funny things. Undergarments. Yay, let's keep going. They wore a white inner robe, um, seemingly to denote their righteousness. Uh, they wore a blue robe over the top of that, which you can see the picture. Then they wore an ephod. <laughs> you probably wore one this Sunday. An ephod. It's this thing, and these are giant pieces of onyx with six of the tribes inscribed on this side and six of the tribes inscribed on this side. What's God trying to teach through this? That, you know, that the priest liked to carry rocks around? Probably not. It was that the priest was bearing the people's burdens on his shoulders to God. So six are inscribed here, six here. Here we have all 12 represented by different precious, semi-precious and precious stones. What do you notice about the location of this? It's over his heart. The priest was to bear God's people's burdens and always have them on his heart as he ministered before the Lord, because he served Yahweh, but he also served the people. Great pictures that God is giving us, not only of a priest in the Old Testament, but of course our great priest, the Lord Jesus, who always bears our burdens on his shoulders and always bears us over his heart uh, whenever he intercedes for us. Uh, let's see, a belt and a sash, because they held everything in place. And then a white linen turban with a gold medallion. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Oh, like now. Blue robe. Uh, the blue robe was seamless, and it had a reinforced collar, and it had pomegranates and bells at the hem. So if it didn't go all the way to the ground, which it doesn't seem to have, it, it might have stopped here. It's got some cloth ornamentation of a pomegranate and then a little bell at the bottom. Seemingly, the pomegranate, pomegranate represented fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. And the bells represented giving a faithful witness to doing ministry. The golden plate. I love this. Okay, so if you look at... Uh, it kind of looks like the Chef Boyardee or something, that hat. I don't like that hat. I like this hat. Okay? Because it probably looks something more like, I, I think this is even a little tall and ornamental. I think it probably looked more like this. But what do I know? I'm only a Gentile. 
I think it looked like that, and it said, holy to the Lord on it. Holiness is the key. Did Aaron, let's just start with Aaron, did Aaron demonstrate himself as a um, great example of holiness? <laughs> Thank you, Jackie. No. Who gave him this medallion? God. God said, you are holy to me, wear this hat with this gold medallion on it. That's amazing. He's done the same to us, hasn't he? Anybody in the room want to raise your hand and say, I was holy before the Lord found me? If you do, I want to talk to you later. <laughs> None of us were. And what did the Lord do? He declared us holy. Not because of any good thing we had done, but because he loved us and said, I love you. You believe in my son. I count you as holy. Wear this. Amazing what he's teaching us in the clothes. They were to be, each, each of the priests were to be consecrated for his service. Look at, look at this. They were washed. This is all coming from chapter 29. They were washed. How many times? Once. Is that interesting? Should be. Maybe I'll leave that for another quiz. Washed once when they were set apart for God's service. Like you and like me. Washed once. They were then clothed with the appropriate clothing. Just like you and just like me. Anointed, they were anointed with oil, anointed with the Holy Spirit, whom God, after he washed us, undressed us, anointed us with his indwelling Holy Spirit. They were forgiven. Remember, they did some sacrifices. They were forgiven. They were dedicated. They were marked. And God even said, I'm going to make sure you're fed. Fed from the bread, which we'll talk about next week, but just a little preview. Uh, what is the bread today? The Word of God. He was feeding them manna. He was feeding them bread in the tabernacle. Remember, Satan is tempting Jesus. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, the word of God. He's teaching them, my, I'm going to take care of feeding you, and the bread I'm going to give you will be my word. But, of course, they don't know that yet. All they know about the Old Testament is what Moses is writing. They don't know very much yet. They're washed, they're clothed, they're anointed, they're forgiven, they're dedicated, they're marked, they're fed. These are special people, consecrated, set apart for God's use, for God's service, consecrated to God. They couldn't go do anything they wanted to do anymore. They were consecrated and set apart to God's service, particularly to serve him daily. They had a morning routine. They offered a burnt offering to symbolize their complete dedication to God. They offered a meal offering symbolizing their sustenance and their strength comes from God and a drink offering, their lives poured out in his service. By the way, a drink offering is never offered alone. It's always added to a sacrifice. 
which is why when Paul says, I am poured out like a drink offering, remember this? Paul says this? And it was one of those verses he always skipped over, and he said, that's weird, why did he say that? This is why he said it. His drink offering is being poured out, of course, on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. He's just saying, my, I'm poured out like a drink offering. My life is poured out into his service. And the way he would have thought of that and symbolized that was to imagine himself as a drink offering, pouring it out on Jesus' sacrifice. Interesting, we'll get there. Why did David, remember when the, he's thirsty? Remember when the mighty men, three of the mighty men go to Jerusalem and get him water from the special well he liked and they brought it back and he poured it out on the ground? And you're like, that's weird. Didn't he just say he was thirsty? Why did he just pour that out on the ground? And he says, I can't drink this. Why? It's a drink offering poured out on the sacrifice these men had just made. There's no better, bigger way David could have honored them by them pouring that out. And they knew what that was. That was a drink offering. And they knew what he meant was, this is poured out on top of the sacrifice you just made for me. I'm so grateful. Instead of going, did he just kind of slap him in the face? No. He just gave them the biggest pat on the back that you could possibly imagine. They would have understood exactly what he was doing. You and I don't, but now you do. The priest's morning routine, burnt offering, my complete dedication to you, Yahweh, a meal offering. You have been my sustenance. You are my strength. Everything I have has come from you. I acknowledge that with a meal offering and a drink offering. May this represent my life poured out in your service. The evening routine, same thing, identical to the morning. A burnt offering, a meal offering, and a drink offering. So they did it morning and evening. Perhaps some of you are familiar with Charles Spurgeon's devotional called Morning and Evening. Do you think he just made those titles up? <laughs> no. Morning and evening. Morning and evening. The morning routine and the evening routine. Not surprising, I think God has some things for us to learn from the priests. First, God has chosen us to serve him as priests. Let's read some, let's read some verses here. John 15, 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 15, 16. Some of those red words, Jesus speaking, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. Chapter 21, verse 17. A third time he asked him. Remember, Peter is being restored. Three denials. The Lord asks him for three acknowledgments. A third time he, Jesus, asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 21.17, yeah. Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. He's chosen us to serve him as his priests. 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Peter. Peter is writing, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests 
Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. I know this is not new information to you, that you are God's priests now. But some, we need to let that sink in again. We're talking about priests in the Old Testament. And he wanted a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It couldn't come to pass because the Spirit was not yet indwelling men and women. What does he want from us? Same thing. You and I are priests. Did we choose it? Did we volunteer for this assignment? Nope. He chose us and appointed us. He called us into this. And he says, you are living stones. What's more, you are his holy priests. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been designated by him as a holy priest. Verse 9. But you are not like that. He's talking about people who stumble. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. What he was illustrating, what he was picturing in the Old Testament has now come to pass. You are priests, called out, washed, consecrated, declared holy, called to a mission to serve him and to stand in the gap between God and men and men and God. You and I are called into that ministry. God has chosen us to serve him as his priests, our relationship with him is highest priority. God's chosen us to serve his people. John 13 and Galatians 6.2. For the sake of time, uh, you can look those up this week. We bear one another's burdens in prayer. We carry one another in our heart, as Paul says in Philippians 1.7. And we have God's word to know God's will. In the Old Testament, they had the two little sticks or stones or whatever they were. The urim and thummim. And so the priest would use those to discern God's will for their lives. What do we do? Do we go left? Do we go right? Now, we pray. We have the word of God. We have the spirit of God to lead us and to direct us. God's chosen us to serve him as his priests. He's chosen us to serve his people. We should serve in the fear of the Lord. Hebrews 12, 28. Let's back up just a little bit here. Hebrews 12, 28. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. Let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. Can you imagine if you were a priest in the Old Testament and you were putting on your clothes in the morning? Can you imagine what you're thinking? <laughs> You put that turban on that says holy to the Lord across the top of it and you go out and you begin ministering to the people. I think you would have thought twice. Serving in the fear of the Lord. We've been consecrated for his service. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 and Colossians 3, you and I have been set apart in Christ to serve. We have been set apart. He has set us apart. For his service, we should be available to God daily to do as he asks. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I know that these are uh, familiar verses to you. I want to introduce one word to you. 
and see if that gives you any new nuance. Um, uh, he says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and, tra- and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, which is good and pleasing and perfect. The one word I want you to underline is transform. Let God transform you. If you were reading the Gospels, you would read that same Greek word and you would read it as transfigure. Let God transfigure you from the inside out. Let God trans. Remember the transfiguration? Right? Jesus. <laughs> Something happens and his glory comes out and they all see it. That's what Paul is saying here. Let God transfigure you from the inside out. This is the way to worship him. Don't be like that. Let him transfigure you and live this different way. This is a very strong and powerful word as to how we're to walk in front of other men and women. We have to begin each day with surrender and finish each day with thanksgiving. Morning and evening. Begin each day with surrender. Finish each day with thanksgiving. How would it change your life if you really, really, really saw yourself as a priest? Tomorrow morning when you got up. When you went to work. Wherever you go this week, whatever you do, wherever you go, if you said, I am a priest of Almighty God, that is the truth of what the Bible is teaching you. You are a priest. And tonight when you go to bed or in the morning when you get up, you are a priest of God Most High. How ought a priest live? Think about that. Selah. (laughs) Okay, one more thing I want to talk about. We're going to finish, I'm going to finish, uh, get through chapter 40 here through the eyes of uh, the priests and the thing that the priests did the best. How do the mature make make the greatest spiritual difference? And that is through intercessory prayer. I have so many people say, well, I'm, I'm not good at this, I'm not good at that, I'm not good at the other thing. You know, I don't know what God has made me to do. And I said, well, keep seeking, keep searching. Well, what do I do in the meantime? Pray. Pray. Some of you already have, and some of you might have profound ministries of prayer. Profound ministries of prayer. Chapter 32. We've gotten through all this great stuff. God says, build me a tabernacle. I've appointed people to be my priests. No sooner does all this stuff happen... Then Moses is up on the mountain, and the people say, Moses is dead. (laughs) God is gone. Aaron, make a golden calf for us. Aaron says, okay, what a good idea. What? You have stood with Moses in front of Pharaoh. You've seen amazing things. It is nutty. What'd they do? They made an idol. Probably they made an idol of Yahweh. Doesn't make it any better what they did. You know, well, let this be Yahweh. Now, see, problem. First and second commandments. Don't have any other gods. Don't make any graven images. (laughs) Bummer, you just made one. And you're worshiping it. Ugh. Right now, you have 
made the covenant null and void. The covenant we went through last week, it's now been broken. They made an idol, whether they made it of Yahweh or whatever it is, that's what they did. Who made it? Aaron, Moses' brother. That's, it's beyond belief. It's exactly what I would do. Turn back to chapter 24 of Exodus. I mean, this makes it even, if it could be made worse, chapter 24, verse, start at verse 9. Chapter 24, verse 9. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. Now, they've ratified the covenant. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli as clear as the sky itself. You'll see that again in the book of the Revelation. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. Which was the symbolism of some of the sacrifices. You're having a covenant fellowship meal with God. It's what the new covenant is all about. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, stay there, and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out, and Moses climbed up the mountain of God. Moses told the elders, stay here and wait for us until we come back. So when is whoever's left supposed to wait until Moses comes back? Aaron and her are here with you. If anyone has a dispute while I am gone, consult with them. Aaron decides this would be a good time to actually come off the mountain. Why does Aaron leave his post? I don't know. If you figure it out, write a paper. I'd love to read it. He leaves the mountain... The people ask for a golden calf, and Aaron gives them whatever they ask for, even idolatry. Why? Ultimately, unbelief. Impatience leads to impulsiveness, and idolatry leads to immorality, which is the story of Romans 1. The people break and thus void God's covenant. Now Moses hears from God, your people are in rebellion off the mountain somewhere. They've, <laughs> they've left the ranch. And Moses says, whoa, 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 these are not my people. I didn't rescue them from Egypt. These are your people. I'm like, oh, Moses, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Moses intercedes. He stands between the nation and its past sin. Do you understand what God offers Moses? Moses, I'm going to kill the entire nation and start over with you. Pretty tempting. If you've been through the wilderness with these people. You, you've likely thought about this very thing once or twice. But he appeals to God's reputation, he appeals to God's promises, and God relents. He says, all right, I'm not going to do that. Moses comes down and disciplines the people, then God disciplines the people. He sends a great plague as a result of a great sin. And he says, I'm not going to go before you to the promised land. And in fact, my presence is going to move away from you outside the camp because if I come down and stay with you, I'm going to destroy you all. Moses then stands there and says, then take me. Like the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Moses stands between the nation 
and its past sin and its future blessing. And so he asks for God's blessing. He asks God, he says, if you're not going with us, we don't want to go. And then he says, show me your glory. And it means something like, show me what's left behind after you walk in front of me. It's not exactly back. It's like, show me what's, you know, kind of show me this, a trail. You know, show me, show me what's left behind as you walk past me. And what does God do? Oh, Moses, silly Moses, I'm not going to do that. What does he do? Moses, I'll do that, but here's what we have to do. I got to put you in a cleft of the rock. I got to hide you, and I'll pass by you, and I'll pronounce my name, and you'll see the trail that's left behind. That's all you can see right now. If I show you any more, it'll kill you. Not only that, God gives two additional blessings. Forgiveness, because he renews the covenant. And he says, not only that, I'm going to give you the Sabbath as a sign of rest. Moses, I will give you what you ask for. And not only that, but these two other things that you didn't even think to ask for. You know, there's a greater Moses, don't you? He's amazing. Because you know what we deserve? The whack on the head. And yet the greater Moses has stood there and says, Daddy, take my life instead. And not only grant them forgiveness... Not only grant them your presence, oh, sorry, but grant them forgiveness and grant them rest, rest for their souls. The greater Moses is amazing, truly amazing. Little pictures of the Lord Jesus back here in Moses. Moses is amazing. Moses asks for God's blessings. God grants them and gives him two besides Their relationship, God's and Israel's, is restored. He accepts their free will gifts in chapter 35. The tabernacle is built. Fellowship is restored. God's presence returns to the heart of the camp in chapter 40. And worship is restored. His praise can again be the nation's focus. And their obedience should spring from renewed love for him as well as his gracious Forgiveness. You need to understand what Moses just did here in praying for the people. Some thoughts on Moses. His natural reaction to disappointment, discouragement, and heartbreak was fasting and prayer. I ask myself, is that my first reaction? to disappointment, discouragement, or heartbreak? Is it prayer and fasting? Moses held God to his word and his character. Two times God said, I will start over with you, Moses. The people never knew what God had offered Moses. And what Moses turned down to stay with them. The people never knew what Moses went through on their behalf on that mountain. Moses put God's reputation first. His own reputation, future place, or even desire for appreciation was nowhere to be found. How do the mature make the greatest spiritual difference? Be engaged with a group of people. For instance, a home group. 
In spite of personal disappointment and hurt, Moses didn't withdraw or abandon his people. If you are the shepherd of that group, someone there is going to get sideways with you. And you'll be tempted to say, call me on the phone or send me an email and say, Bill, get this person out of my group. And you know what I'm going to say? No. I'm going to say, go read Exodus 25 through 40 and see what it is you're supposed to be doing. You need to step into that person and pray for that person and walk with that person. If Moses can do it with them, we can do it with each other. Pray earnestly for them. That was Moses' natural reaction. Every time he's crossed, what does he do? Moses falls on his face and he prays for the people. When they sin, he seeks to restore their fellowship with God and worship to God. There is no higher ministry on earth. The men and women that you run across in your daily lives who have sinned, maybe some larger, maybe some smaller, they are not as walking as closely with the Lord as probably even they would like. They feel stuck. They don't know what to do. They need you. They need you to help them restore their fellowship with God and restore their worship to God. They need a priest. And that's you. And that's me. A quick overview of Exodus. We've seen... Acquisition of a people out of Egypt, the first 18 chapters. The constitution of a people as a nation. And the preparation of a people for their God King in 25 through 40. We've also seen three great spiritual pictures. The first, Egypt, which is a picture of redemption. Deliverance takes an appointed deliverer. And they were redeemed through faith in God's word and under the blood of an unblemished sacrifice. And then they were baptized in the Red Sea. Why? Because God frees his people to follow him. We saw Mount Sinai, a picture of adoption. God enters into a special covenant relationship with his people. It was ratified by blood on an altar, celebrated by a covenant meal, and it required their obedience for blessing. He's illustrating for us that freedom should lead to obedience. That God's word and his will are freeing and fulfilling. That his word and his will lead to fruitfulness. That his word and his will protect our fellowship. And he gave us a picture of the desert sojourn, a picture of fellowship. That fellowship and worship must be done God's way. And we'll take our final look at that next week. That fellowship, not relationship, can be broken through sin. God withdraws when grieved. That's even true in the New Testament. Fellowship can be restored through repentance, a holy intercessor, and God's gracious character. The holy intercessor in this particular case is the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit not a, necessarily a person. Three great spiritual pictures from the book of Exodus. For next week, we'll take a look at the tabernacle. So if you didn't read the parts on the tabernacle furniture, skim those at least or read them. And next week, we'll talk about the tabernacle. And I'll give you a little quiet time on how to walk through the tabernacle uh, for your quiet times uh, if, if you'd like a change of pace in what you're doing in your quiet time. Well, let's read 25 through 40 again. Yeah. And you can focus on the parts that have to do with the furniture, the building and the furniture. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the priests of the Old Testament. It is unbelievable and remarkable to me that you have <laughs> called us 
and set us apart, consecrated us to be your priests. To stand in between you and men and men and you. That is high calling. Uh, We acknowledge that we are undeserving of it. But what you ask us to do, you will empower us to do. And so may we continue like the burnt offering to remind ourselves every morning that we are completely dependent on you and on your empowerment for us. Let us do that with holiness in our personal lives and humility that however we do it, And whatever we say would come from your spirit and would serve your purposes. We're amazed at who you are and what you would call us to do. We love you. We thank you. Help us to grow up and grow into this role, please. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. See you in a week.